Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Population health refers to the health outcomes within a group of people rather than considering the health of one person at a time. Population health, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of On Call with the Prairie Doc, medical information based on science, built on trust. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, your Prairie Doc host tonight. Thank you for joining us. Tonight's topic is population health. Population health focuses on the health outcomes of the population as a whole, rather than individuals. This is closely related to public health, which is the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting health through the organized efforts and informed choices of society, organizations, public and private, communities, and individuals. Joining us to address this topic is, to is Dr. Tom Dean from Westington Springs and Dr. Tad Jacobs from Flandreau, South Dakota. Great to be here. Thank you for joining yeah. me. Mm -hmm. Tom, if you don't mind going first, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay, well, I grew up on a farm west of Westington Springs, went to high school there. But after that, I wandered around the world for a while. I went to college in Minnesota, and I went to medical school in New York. I spent a year in England. Uh, and then when I finished medical school, I had decided that I really was interested in family medicine, which was a brand new idea at that point and uh, ended up uh, doing a residency at the University of Washington in Seattle, where I met my wife. And she was, by the way, the very first nurse I met as a quivering, scared-to-death young intern. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, uh, then uh, we, we spent uh, three years in southeastern Kentucky, where Kathy went to midwifery school, and I practiced in an in organization there, and then we moved back to Westington Springs in 1978 and have been there ever since. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, it's a great pleasure. <laughs> and Tad, Dr. Chad Jacobs, if you'd mind sharing us about yourself. Yeah, no, happy to. So uh, it, it's funny how women just kind of shape our future, <laughs> isn't it? It's just something that uh, uh, happened with us, too. So uh, Kathy and I met in a hospital in uh, Michigan, uh, I was a respiratory therapist at the time. She was a, an LPN in peds. Uh, she, we met setting up a croup tent, Tom. Do you remember croup tents? <laughs> I sure do. So uh, uh, that, that's, that's where the, the, it all sort of began. Uh, ultimately, I ended up in medical school in Des Moines, and then I had a National Health Service Corps obligation. So uh, Flandreau qualified as a site. They had a, a, a doc there who was looking to retire. Uh, and uh, I joined that doc and bought the practice in 1982. So uh, practiced in Flandreau, uh, uh, cradle to grave kind of kind of a practice. Uh, um, loved every minute of it, uh, and um, did that for 28 years. And uh, after that period of time, uh, we I had done a lot of work with Avera. We eventually sold our practice to McKinnon at the time, uh, and then Avera kept growing. We came involved with with that, uh, and so I had an administrative role. 
with, uh, with Avera the last 10 years of my practice. So uh, 38 years or so in all, and uh, it's been a great ride. So as Chief Medical Officer with Avera Medical Group, obviously you were able to have a hand in public health and population right, health. Indeed, indeed. And Dr. Dean, as could you explain to you, us your role with the National Rural Health Association and, and your hand in population health, public health? Um, shortly after I moved or started practice, I got involved with a group called the National Rural Health Association. And it just seemed to me at that point that the needs or the concerns for rural uh, communities and rural patients were just not being adequately uh, addressed and uh, this organization really was speaking to that and so I got more and more involved with that organization eventually became president uh, after a number of years and and uh, so was involved with they were involved with uh, health policy development and lobbying and those kind of things and then eventually uh, through that organization I uh, got connected with uh, 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 a group called the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which was probably the most involved health policy activity I was involved in. This was a MedPAC is a branch of Congress that advises Congress on Medicare policy, and it was uh, uh, so I did that, going <laughs> a lot of trips to D.C. Uh, back and forth. I, I was still in practice; it wasn't a full-time job, but. We uh, talked about a lot of the, the problems and the, the changes that can come in Medicare and the things that Medicare does well and the places where there are problems. It was very interesting and a very challenging experience. So we've got three family docs that care deeply about our communities. Our community, right. So and, yeah, and that have also been involved in, in more than just taking care of our, our practices, but being involved in, 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 in public health and population health. So sure. thank you for, for joining me. Sure. Before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit, to submit your questions about public health. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into our drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So, going back to some of these uh, the questions about uh, population health and public health, you know, looking back in your careers, what is an example of a successful public health initiative you have seen in your career, Tom? One of the things that I remember vividly was when I was a, a resident and early in practice, uh, there was a, there's a disease called H. flu meningitis, which was a, is a devastating disease. It's a brain infection that comes from very common bacteria. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there, the, the uh, only way it could be diagnosed with a, was with a spinal tap, and any kid that got a fever, any baby with a high fever, ended up with a spinal tap because it was the only way that it could be diagnosed and 
it was it was terrible if you missed the diagnosis because kids died from this and even those that survived some had long-term disabilities and and so it was it was it was really a, a horrible thing to deal with and about the time I entered practice the vaccine for uh, H flu for haemophilus influenza became available and that disease disappeared it it in fact, I would venture to say that most physicians in training will never see a case. And, and yet we, we coped with it all the time. And we treated this life-threatening disease in our little hospital in Wessington Springs because there was, that was, there was no other place to do it. And we had, we had an infant die in Wessington Springs from that. So that was, it, was, it was a tough challenge and it was totally uh, eliminated. But when the when the vaccine became available, it, it was just a, a marvelous development. You know, and I you know we're we're both old enough that we remember polio pretty well, right? Right. Now, yeah. Uh, yeah. You think about that uh, and how how it impacted so many millions of people, uh, and um, you know that was long ago, but kind of ushered in that air understanding we can do things to control disease. Uh, and impact people's lives, uh, which was uh, just an amazing advancement at the time. Yeah, one of the things that I, I think that we may suffer from today, suffer probably isn't the right word, that vaccines have, have been too successful. And some of these things that you and I had to deal with years ago are not around, but, they, but the, the, the uh, infectious agents are still there. And if we let up, on these uh, interventions, especially childhood vaccines, and it's a real concern yeah. Yeah. because the data we see, those numbers are going down. H flu meningitis will come back, polio will come back, measles will come back. Yeah. And we and, see some measles outbreaks, we see some mumps right. outbreaks. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. and so I think those of us that have been around for a while really worry uh, about that, uh, that prospect that, that we get, uh, we just, you know, there's lots of reasons people come up with why I don't want this shot or that shot or whatever. Some of them are legitimate. I, I, they're not shots cause some problem. But compared to the devastating impact of, of these infections, it, it's, it's really nothing. And we're really quite educated, you know, in, this, in these last three years or so about, about how, well, in the case of, of COVID, right, how viruses can mutate and change and still continuing to affect us over time. So diligence is the key. Yeah. With so many of these public health initiatives, there involves individuals giving up something um, for freedom, uh, a stab, um, some of their time, some effort, but for the greater good, you know, what, what, do they, what are they giving up and what do they gain? Well, that's, that's where the challenge comes that we, we balance the potential gains against whatever uh, cost, uh, um, in a very broad sense, there, there may be. Uh, but a lot of times it's giving up a little bit of freedom or a little bit of uh, potential uh, risk from some of these interventions. Most of those risks are very small, but, but they are real. Yeah, I think, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm concerned about education, right? That we're, we're, we're not educating folks en enough or in the right way to understand, you know, the, the degree to which research and, and, and uh, studies have, have led to these things finally being available to them. And so um, 
the danger is 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 really ignoring that and then uh, um, thinking that you're going to be okay uh, when in fact you, know, you may not be okay it may affect a lot of, of people around you yeah I think it you know going back to the vaccines and childhood vaccines and with some uh, young parents deciding not to vaccinate I think they're weighing in their head well I I could they could get the vaccine or but did they really need it? I never see these diseases. I've never heard of anyone having these things. And, and then what if it causes something for them? And so then they choose not to do it. And how do we overcome that? Yeah. It, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a, a big challenge. And I think that um, as medicine, medical care has become more and more complicated, more and more fragmented, Oftentimes, patients don't really have a good relationship with a doctor or another provider or some other expert that can help uh, understand the pros and cons of all of this. And, and, and then we have probably not done a good job. Uh, sometimes we have uh, put in regulations that require things that people may not fully understand. And when you tell somebody they have to do something, uh, they may say, you know, get their arch the neck and say, yeah, you can't tell me to do that. I've, I've got a, a funny recollection about that. A very long time ago, when I was about 10 years old, South Dakota did not require driver's licenses. And, and then they passed a law that said that you have to have a license if you're going to drive a car. And my dad blew up. We had to peel him off the ceiling <laughs> because who, who has the right to tell me I can't drive my own car? And, but it's the same issue that once, you know, I think we would all agree that there's plenty of good justification for driver's licenses, but, sure. but it wasn't clear to him and he wasn't going to have anybody pushing him around, <laughs> you know. And, but, but so it's not a new issue. So it, a lot of it has to do with how well we can do in explaining this to the people involved and 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 first of all we have to know we have to sure. the, we have to know what the pros and cons really are and sometimes we do and sometimes we don't it all, it all boils back down to education right how well are we educating people and i think in the in the case of of most recently covid right that's what we all we all are, are understand but probably the best um I don't know that we did the best job of educating folks about the safety of the of the vaccine that that came out. Um, you know, I, I, setting the whole politics thing aside, right? I mean, a lot of people felt like it was rushed into it, something that was suddenly created. It wasn't safe. It wasn't tested. The reality, it, it had been over a decade that they'd been working on this MRA technology, right? Amazing. And the fact that it came to be available as fast as it did was really one of the remarkable advancements of, of, of medicine uh, and, and science of, of, of our day anyway. So I think, I think we, uh, that being healthcare, uh, need to really step back a little bit and say, how can we do a better job of educating our patients so they don't have that fear? Yeah, because I mean, we'd always, traditionally had to grow the vaccine components, right. incubate them, or we, and, and that took time, <laughs> or attenuate them, make them weaker, um, as opposed to here we could just program that genetic material in there. Amazing. Much quicker. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and to appreciate that. And I think it, 
it, it all moved so fast, I think, uh, especially with COVID, that uh, we, we all of a sudden had a huge threat and we had some tools, but, but they weren't, they were new and, you know, and, and I know that, that there was a lot of criticism of public health authorities. Well, you should wear a mask. No, they don't do any good. In fact, we didn't know in the beginning whether they did any good. We know now they really do provide a beneficial, a protective effect. But, but I think uh, people took that uh, differing opinions uh, to mean we didn't know what we were doing and in some cases they, they were right. I mean now I think it, it's been around and we the studies have been done and, and, and we know but it was it was hard. But it comes down to that thing where people have to give up something. Yeah. You know and when even masks when you're when you're wearing a mask you're mostly protecting everyone else. Unless it's a really, really good mask, and then you're protecting yourself. But you know, if I'm in surgery and I have a mask on, I don't have a mask on to protect myself from this patient who's unconscious. There, I'm, I'm wearing a mask to protect them from any germs exactly. spewing out of my yeah. mouth. Right. Exactly. Uh, I think some people see people with masks and think, "Oh, they're scared. They're, they're, they're loving their neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. They're caring about their neighbor. Maybe they've got a cold or a cough and." And, and if a person does, hopefully they're wearing a mask when they're out. I think that's an important point. That, and it's especially true with something like COVID where people can be totally asymptomatic and still be infected yeah. and spreading Carry the disease. Yeah. That, that's yeah. one of the really difficult right. things and why, why the public health authorities have, have pushed, for instance, especially masking, uh, and people objected because they say, well, I feel fine, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. In fact, they could be infected and they could be spreading the virus to their neighbor who might be very susceptible. And you know, I think we as healthcare providers can sometimes you know, be, do a better job of saying, you know, we really just don't know yet. Yeah. You know, or something to that effect to say, because there's a lot of gray in medicine, right? We yeah. just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So. When disaster strikes a community, it's important people know what to do. Having an emergency plan is the best way for community members to understand what their role is in a crisis. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke with a Brookings County official on how their plan operates in times of need. Robert Hill is on the board of the Brookings County Pandemic Planning Coordinating Committee. Around 2005, they enacted the Be Ready Brookings emergency plan to respond to disasters. Bird flu was a concern at the time. And about what well, our records show 2005, 2006, they started to make planning in case uh, uh, bird flu migrated to humans. The plan soon added flu vaccination points of dispensing or pods. Hill said the pods would be located at hospitals, stores, and the Dakota Bank Center. He also said the lessons learned from those vaccination pods were critical when the COVID-19 pandemic began. And we would use those instances as exercises to make sure our pandemic plan worked. It wasn't a pandemic of 2020. It wasn't the COVID pandemic, but it was giving us practice, giving all those flu shots up until the time really helped. Hill says the committee likes to run a full-scale exercise of the emergency plan every three years to simulate an emergency. That way, everyone knows the plan, and those exercises range from pipeline issues to power line predicaments. And we simulated that a vehicle hit an electrical pole, knocked the electrical line on top of the combine, 
Now you've got a farmer inside the combine. He can't get out because he's got a live electrical line sitting on his combine. So we scrambled the fire department out and went through a full-scale exercise on how to get that, that farmer out. The last simulation they ran was in 2021, and another emergency they discussed were strong winds and how they could affect the community. A year later, the derecho hit Brookings County. Hill credits the committee and the plan for the swift recovery to get everything working again. A lot of power poles came down, and like I said, we was out of power for, I want to say, 26 hours here in the city of Brookings. And once again, that day, our emergency planning in the city of Brookings really showed because we had our emergency operations center working within an hour. Hill concludes by saying he and the committee can plan all they want, but it's the people and emergency responders who are the ones who help save the community in times of crisis. You can't have a good emergency management operations, or, or you, know, you can do all the planning you want, but it's the people that make them plans work. Well, we sure appreciate our emergency responders uh, big time. You know, have either of you been involved in emergency management plans? You know, you can't uh, you can't live in a small town without. You, I mean, you wear a lot of hats, right? So you <laughs> you can't, but uh, you can't get away from that. Uh, uh, but we have very close relationships with the emergency responders in our community, and um, you know, one of the things that we do in in terms of uh, 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 preparing for uh, what might occur. Uh, is simulation of, of uh, scenarios, accidents, right? Uh, and usually that occurs at least on an annual basis, uh, but uh, sometimes they're pretty elaborate, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, a bus overturns and you've got uh, 20 kids that are hurt and, you know, some, some seriously, some not, some hysterical, some not. Uh, but we play that role down to at the scene uh, with some pretty good cosmetics going on out there in the field. Uh, and then in transport, back to the hospital, triaging those patients. Uh, we even had a helicopter fly in one time, right? Uh, so, you know, those types of things, uh, you know, the, the more that you can do them, the more you're actually prepared for when something really happens. Yeah, yeah. In that uh, video, there's one example, there was mass vaccination in a pandemic. And, and we did have a question um, um, from an email, and we kind of got into this some, but. This person says the pol politicizing of COVID-19 and, and the conflicting or misrepresented information caused the population to not trust the medical community. What can doctors and nurses do to reinstate trust so that the populace can trust? It's, uh, it, that's a very important question without an easy answer. <laughs> and, but I, I think uh, that the, the bottom line is we, we need to do, and Ted already alluded to this, we need to do a better job of explaining both what the, what the, what the risk is and what, the, uh, 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 what is involved with any of these interventions, whether it's masks or vaccines or isolation or whatever. Uh, and and why why did how did we get to that conclusion? Because most people, if you give them a logical, sensible explanation, uh, that will be enough. But too often, 
you know, we get rushed and, and we just assume that, well, we've got these degrees and so you just trust us. Well, years ago that was true, mm -hmm. but it's not true anymore. And it's probably, it's probably okay that it's not true. Uh, I think it, we, we, people need to challenge authority to some degree, but, but also they need to recognize when, when the authority or the individual that has in some authoritative position really has some good uh, science behind their conclusions and what they're, what they're recommending. It comes down to trust and it comes down to establishing that relationship. I, you know, I've had, thankfully, majority of my families will, will vaccinate, but some may go at a slower rate or some choose not to, but I, I haven't told them I won't see them anymore. Sometimes some doctors will do that. Yeah, and then you're mm -hmm. forming this barrier to trust and communication. And so, so I, I will still see them and care for them and, and be there for them. Um, and prior to the pandemic, I, I you know, slowly made progress with, with some families where you know, I might tell them about HIB. And, yeah. and what used to be the case. And, and maybe they'd be, okay, well, we can do that one vaccine. And that would help to establish that trust and establish that, that, that uh, conversation. But I tell you, it, did, it took a huge hit. Any, some of those families where we were making progress, they were, they were done, done after, after COVID. You know, I was, I was just thinking as I was listening to the two of you, if I was sitting on the exam table and you were explaining that to me, you know, I mean, I would, I would really, I would feel comfortable and I would trust you, right? And so, um, uh, I mean, those relationships, I mean, you can't underestimate that. But what I would say is that, you know, you know, healthcare is becoming more and more fractionated, right? And you don't know who you're seeing sometimes. Uh, but if you're a patient and you're, you're uncertain and, and you don't feel like you're getting the answers from your primary care provider or whomever, uh, you need to let them know that. And then if that still doesn't help, then you need to look for another uh, primary care yeah. provider. And along those lines, this person says, how do we handle misinformation about vaccines? Where would you direct people, you know, besides their primary care doctor? Right. Um, Tom? Well, um, you know, the, the, the probably the, the most well-known one is the CDC, uh, but and and granted, there's some people that are not going to trust them either. Well, and and they've made mistakes. I mean, mm -hmm. so it there is a reason. I mean, that would be I, I where I would go first of all if I if I wanted objective scientific information, but I think that that uh, it. Uh, uh, there's no easy way. Probably the the uh, as I try to keep track of the news, I'm a real news junkie. But I can't trust any single source. I, I read about three yeah. or four different newspapers, and it's easy online now. And of course, it's so much more difficult now because there are so many sources of information, and some of them are are spewing out pure garbage, and and others are really making an effort to. Uh, uh, to give uh, good information, and and it sometimes is difficult to sort out uh, mm -hmm. which uh, which ones really. So it, it's a very important question. There's not an easy answer, but but it's important to try to find, uh, especially an individual who who you trust and who you believe really does have the 
have the, a good perspective on this. You know, it's ingrained in us from our, our medical school days, right? I mean, uh, we are data-driven, uh, evidence-based medicine, we used to talk about quite a bit. Um, but, but understanding that, that, that we, don't, we don't push something forward in, in medicine unless we really have the, the background data to support it. And so uh, for patients, they need to understand or at least ask the question, you know, what, so you feel that way, What's your, what is your source? What, what do you utilize? How do you counteract, in, or, you know, when someone has an N of one? I know someone who did this and this happened. I know someone who did this and this happened. How do you, how that's do you? A, that's a, that is a powerful influence on, on many of yeah. our patients. You know, I, I learned that uh, when I came back to a small community. I'd been in academic institutions where, where data was the answer to every question and yet I would go and say we need some to one of our community organizations or county commissioners or whoever that we needed to make some changes and I would spew out the, all this scientific data, these controlled studies, it meant zero. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it isn't that these people weren't smart, yeah. they were smart enough, right. but that they just don't, didn't have the advantage of, of the background to appreciate the significance of what a, what a controlled trial really is. Mm -hmm. and, and so, but if, if their cousin had a bad experience somewhere, that was something that really meant something to them. And, and I understand that. Where, I, where you've got a group of people that are randomly determined that these people are gonna get the treatment and these people are not gonna get the yep. treatment. And these people don't know if they're getting the treatment and they don't know if they, they're getting right. the treatment and the people giving them the treatment don't know if they're getting the treatment or they don't know the double, double blind. blind yeah. yep. And then we see what happens and we find that this many people were benefited and these many people weren't and that was different than in the control setting, or it wasn't different in the control so, setting. So you really can tell because uh, somebody will say, well, years ago, everybody got, got a cold, got a shot of penicillin, and they all got better, so that penicillin must have really done something. <laughs> well, in fact, we know now it didn't do anything. Yep. It was just the natural yep. history of the disease, but mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't make that determination unless you have uh, a control group, and uh, it's... Uh, Stepping back in, in public health and population health, what are other efforts that communities do to engage um, in, and to decrease the risk and spread of disease? You know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking back to garbage collection, clean water, mm -hmm. you know, along these lines. The, the, that throughout society and civilization, we've learned that we, we have to do this collectively to help make our population healthier. Pasteurization of milk a that milk. we'll talk about later. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think, and, and actually, if you look at the, the statistics and the history, it was uh, clean water that probably saved more lives than anything we as doctors do. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And yeah. so uh, those things, but, but people don't, I mean, we just forget about it. We just take it for granted now. And in fact, we, we shouldn't be, because there's some of those interventions are tremendously important and continue to be. Yeah. And, and we, you know, we hear stories every once in a while where some water source will. We hear about it these days with lead pipes, that uh, some communities still sure. are getting their drinking water through lead pipes, and, and it's causing the problem. And yet, it, it's a subtle thing, and, and until somebody really looked at it, 
they didn't appreciate that these kids were not developing and not learning uh, at the rate they should. And, and by golly, it was probably from those lead pipes. And uh, so in many ways, it really is going back to basics, just like that. Mm -hmm. So nutrition is one of the one mm -hmm. of the areas, right? I mean, I think um, I think there's a lot of stuff out there that really talks about what what is appropriate nutrition, and uh, and and what are, what are the bad things that we do, and uh, I think that that involves not just doctors, but but people who are nutritionists and people who are in the business, uh, the food business, for example. Um, so, you know, I, I think. Those those things collectively looking at those simple things, you know, help us to overcome some of those issues. Right? Yeah, yeah. Now I'm thinking of lunch, kid school lunch programs. Yeah. And, yeah. You know how important yeah. that is for the health of a community to get the kids healthy, so that way they right. are not hungry and they can learn and be at school and having and breakfast contribute. for kids at, in the morning because the parents are working. I mean that's that's. That's in most of our communities, I think, these days. I also think of, of smoking and secondhand smoke exposure and how, you know, not that long ago, it was hard to go to a restaurant or bar without smoke. Or get on an airplane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got stuck in the back seat with smokers all around me, and oh, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I know. I know. And it wasn't yeah. that long ago. It wasn't that long yeah. ago. <laughs> and From so our now, perspective. And now we take it for granted again. But, <laughs> right. you know, and there's so many right. people that did smoke that some of them are glad that happened because that helped them quit too. Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah. there's many, many things we can do as for population health, public health that, that you know, none of us have our MPH, Masters in Public Health, but thankfully some people do and many, many physicians do too. Mm -hmm. um, and others that, uh, that help study these things and, and find best ways to help take care of everyone. Um, which goes along with this person from Facebook said, when people are studying to make changes to healthcare, do they look at just populated areas or do they look at smaller communities as well? Well, I think that uh, there certainly are some things where we're looking at the outcomes in small communities is really important because we've discovered there are some real differences. Yeah. And so in answer to the question, I think more and more uh, researchers understand that you need uh, to have uh, different uh, locales, different uh, uh, environments uh, in included so that you can try to determine if the, if the uh, environment or, or probably more specifically the access to services mm -hmm. that, that people have, does that uh, impact their health and and we know that it does and you know you spoke of emergency uh, medicine it's really a problem these days because it's, it's small communities are having more and more challenge keeping ambulance services running for sure and and nursing homes yeah <laughs> and so uh, that uh, if you have a, a bad accident or a heart attack uh, any number of things the the early treatment we know makes a difference and is, is important and it's going to be it it continues to be a real challenge to get that uh that care to the people that need it in a timely manner and i think we have been working on that some uh, and really comes down to some of those social determinants of health of, of of factors that affect a person's ability to 
be healthy mm -hmm. and get health care. Mm -hmm. and, and can you explain that some and, and mm -hmm. how we're looking at that now more? Yeah, you know, so we're talking a lot about things we think that we can change, but there's a lot of stuff that we can't change, right? And so, um, you know, there was one study that actually looked and said, you know, you as, you as doctors and healthcare providers can only impact about 20% of a person's, you know, uh, life. So, so social determinants health, things like uh, your race, um, uh, your language, what language do you speak, uh, your education level, uh, for example, um, uh, transportation, um, do you have transportation? Um, yeah, and, and in some cases, even your zip code, which zip code you live in. So yeah. if, you, if you look at those, uh, your race, I mean, we know, good example in South Dakota, Native American population has significantly less uh, results in, or outcomes uh, uh, in terms of population health than the remainder of the population. Um, uh, language, uh, we still have some language barriers uh, in the state, and we, we, we try to overcome that, but is the person who's, who's really needing the care understanding what needs to take place? Um, uh, you know, uh, transportation, for example, uh, a lot of people may not have a car, may not be able to have transportation. They're using public transportation if they're in a larger town, uh, but does that public transportation take them where they need to go? Can they can they get to, to can they get to work? Can they get to a clinic? Can they get to a hospital or emergency room? Can they get to a grocery store? You know, or are they using um, Quick Trip two blocks down the line for their groceries? You know, yeah. uh, those types of things and. Interesting study in Sioux Falls, it was in the Argus years ago, they took by zip code in, in the metro area of, of Sioux Falls and looked at um, uh, you know number of deaths, uh, number of people with diabetes and certain diagnoses, this was all blind stuff, I mean they didn't know the people, they just knew that they were in that zip code. Um, and there was a dramatic difference, for example, between the south side of Sioux Falls and just that northern side of Sioux Falls. Um, so where you live has an awful lot to do with that. We need to overcome those barriers. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a real, as far as from rural communities, there, some of the technology has really benefited that. Just recently, there was a, a, a story about a, a fellow who lives out in Gann Valley, which is just west of Westington Springs, which is really out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't think they would mind him. <laughs> he was gored by a buffalo. And mm -hmm. seriously injured, mm -hmm. and and but it happened that the ambulance from Kimball that picked him up had real-time video contact with the e-emergency service at in Sioux Falls, mm -hmm. and so the minute that fellow was able to get to the ambulance, he was had uh, his care was being monitored and advised by uh, the uh, emergency medicine specialist yeah. in Sioux Falls. And the ambulance brought him to our hospital in Westington Springs and then they flew him to Sioux Falls and yeah. he eventually survived. But if he, it, was, it, was, it was nip and tuck. Nip and tuck, that's great stuff though. It's right. amazing what we can do with some of those e-services <laughs> yeah. now, yeah. if you use them. Within two days of birth, all newborns receive a standard health screening. A new screening was added to the list recently, thanks to a local family. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower shares the journey of how their son's disease changed South Dakota's newborn screen. Meg and Chris Haberman are the mother and father of Isaac. At two years old, Isaac was struggling with communication, so the Habermans took Isaac to be evaluated. It turned out Isaac also needed physical therapy, and the Habermans were ready for the challenge. It was about 
six months into the physical therapy journey that the physical therapist kind of said, hey, you know, he's only two, but it's hard to tell with a two-year-old if they're actually engaging in physical therapy or not, but I fe we feel like he's regressing a little bit and not making the progress that we think he should be at his age. Another six months went by of testing to find out Isaac had a muscular disease. In January of 2017, that disease was diagnosed as Pompeii disease, which affects one out of 40,000 children a year. Luckily, there is a treatment for it. It's every 14 days. He spend, we spend about five to six hours in the hospital and he gets an infusion of the enzyme his body doesn't make. He's had 178 infusions at this point. I mean, he did meet the benchmarks. It was just always kind of on the late side, but it was still kind of in the normal, um, normal time frame. But now we see videos of him just struggling um, to walk upstairs without help. Something was going on. It just took us a while to realize that. After infusions, Isaac runs and plays like he doesn't have a rare disease. But since it is rare, there isn't much recent data on the disease. The Habermans soon found out South Dakota did not screen for Pompe disease, although it was recommended nationwide in 2015. It was around his 100th infusion. We had a celebration and we just said, we need to do something like children born in South Dakota deserve screening for that. Time is muscle. If you can diagnose this at birth, like we can prevent so much muscle damage with the treatment we have available today. The Habermans started their campaign in 2020 by reaching out to many organizations, advocates in other states, and the legislators in South Dakota. I reached out to our legislators. Uh, I figured that's a good place to start. And I said, how does something get added to South Dakota's newborn screening? And they said, we don't know. Let's find out. Let's find out. <laughs> and um, found out uh, the, the State Board of Health is the one who adds it. We got the information we needed as to how it's done. And then we were able to just work with the Department of Health and they reconvened a committee for newborn screening that hadn't been in place for several years. And we were able to share our story at that, at that meeting. And on September 1st, 2022, Pompeii disease was added to newborn screenings in South Dakota. I think we were told maybe in July that it was being added and we knew it was time. coming. It took a while. I mean, everything takes a while. How do you make sure that every single hospital is equipped to, to do this and, and mm -hmm. communicate it and all the things necessary for this? And so we, we knew it was coming, but yeah, it was, it was a big celebration when yeah. September 1st came. For our family. Yeah, in that last graphic, it states that South Dakota tests for 50 diseases in the newborn screen. And, and, and that was, that's really remarkable, that family and, and what they were able to do to add that disease to it, too. What is the newborn screen? Yeah, you know, so Tom and I were just talking about this earlier, you know. And so when we were in practice, we think there were like five in that, in that list of now 50. So that's pretty impressive. But, you know, I, I think the newborn screen for any, for, for any child is, is extremely important, right? And so there's screenings that takes place just after birth, right? Uh, and uh, obviously physical exam takes place, but, but then uh, blood is drawn, uh, uh, cord blood is drawn. Uh, to, to screen for a number of different diseases. Yeah. Right? And just to, even just a little heel stick and, and exactly um, right. you know, and honestly, that was the impetus for this show. Um, I'd had a string of, of some young moms uh, or parents that didn't want their kid 
their newborn to have the newborn screen, which it's actually the law to have it done because it's in the best interest of, of all parties and especially the child because if we can catch these things early, help them early, it can avoid brain damage and other, other problems. But you know, it, it comes down to education and they just didn't know what it was. Sometimes they just, oh, I thought you were just gonna poke my baby for the fun of it or something, you know, it, and, and, and so it just, a, just a little little heel prick and then they can save so many lives in the end this way. Right. Um, and so it, it really is a, a remarkable thing and we kind of already talked about how to, what can we do to rebuild the trust in medicine, but. You know, and at the time of exam, you know, of a newborn, I mean, you may not, you, there may be no signs that you would know that there right. was a problem going on. So these tests w would give you the, the at least the, uh, uh, the, the background that, hey, you, you need to be looking at this, right? So and, and at least for some of these, and probably most of these diseases, they have no, you have no way to diagnose them anyway. And by the time they show up, by the time that baby or young uh, child develops some symptoms, it may be too late to treat them because some of them are, are things that need to be, like thyroid is the most uh, well-known one. That it's easy to mm -hmm. replace early on, but mm -hmm. if they've already been damaged by the loss or the absence of that, mm -hmm. uh, it, it may not be re uh, repairable. So I, hopefully if some of our viewers are gonna have a baby or a grandchild or something, they say yes to the newborn screen yeah. and, and say yes to some vaccinations. And you know, you know, I would have that discussion ahead of time with your obstetrician or your primary care doc and, and make sure that that's not a decision you're making uh, at the point of the delivering. Right. I think that's right. critical, right. yeah, that's really important. There's been some changes in reimbursement and how we provide care for a population. Can, can uh, Tad, can you explain that some? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, typically, uh, you know, we were a fee-for-service, and to a certain extent, we still are. So if, if you do a procedure or you see a patient, uh, you, you spend the amount of time, you, you bill it, you get paid for that service, right? Well, as time got, has gone on and they start looking at population health data, you know, they say, well, geez, you know, how, how can there be this discrepancy between providers in terms of caring for basic things like High blood pressure. And I guess this is more of a one minute answer. Oh, diabetes, so you know. okay. Diabetes, <laughs> all right, okay. So, so uh, right, so at any rate, uh, uh, you know, the, the, main, the main focus is um, get it taken care of. I'm right. sorry. We need I'm to sorry. change the incentive, I yeah, think. Yeah, right, right, the yeah. incentive needs to be on making sure we get the right care, not just that we get more care. Right. And, right, and yeah. in the fee-for-service system, the, the incentive was to provide more care. Right, so reimbursement now looks at that. So what, what are your outcomes? And if you're doing a great job of taking care of diabetes and hypertension, you know, you're gonna make a little bit more, or you're gonna be reimbursed a little bit more because of those outcomes. Yeah. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The winner of our prize tonight is Gloriana. Thank you for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. On Call with the Prairie Doc has been a leading source of health education for 21 seasons. Join us as we continue to provide health information based on science, built on trust. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. My father-in-law is a farmer. He grew up on the family farm in southwest Minnesota, where his dad grew up too.
Blessed by fertile soil, the farm has provided for the family for several generations. It is invaluable for my children to experience the farm, see the crops grow, help with animals, and learn about the cycles of life on the farm. The farm no longer has cows, but it did at one time. My father-in-law used to milk cows. He remembers they had a pasteurizer. His mother would pour in raw milk, the cream rose to the top, and the milk would have chunks of fat and protein in it from curdling. He remembers thinking how lucky the townsfolk were, having cartons of smooth milk without the chunks. The process of pasteurizing milk was invented by Louis Pasteur over 150 years ago. One of the fathers of bacteriology, germ theory, and microbiology, he helped develop the sterilization procedures to kill off bacteria. He disproved a common belief at the time in spontaneous generation, proving that living beings do not spontaneously arise out of nothing. He invented the process of treating milk to stop bacterial contamination, now known as pasteurization, named in his honor. Rich in nutrients, milk is an excellent medium for growing bacteria. In pasteurization, milk is heated to destroy pathogens like bacteria and spoilage organisms like yeast and molds. This helps to extend the shelf life of milk. Very little nutrients are lost in the process, and often additional good nutrients are added, like vitamin D and vitamin A. Improperly handled raw milk is the leading cause of hospitalization for any foodborne disease source. Pasteurization can help prevent numerous diseases and kills the harmful bacteria Salmonella, Listeria, Yersinia, Campylobacter, Staphylococcus aureus, and Escherichia coli, among others. As more and more people are further removed from farm life, some people do not know where or how their food is made. Some take for granted the work and steps in getting the food to the grocery store. It is the pasteurization of milk that allows it to be safely consumed by anyone far from the farm. Without it, we could be at risk of getting sick from bad milk. Without it, we might not all be able to enjoy the nutritional benefits of milk, helpful for our bones and overall health. Big thank you to our guests, Dr. Tom Dean and Dr. Tad Jacobs for volunteering their time to help us learn more about population health. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. and underdiagnosed, sleep apnea is a common condition that prevents your body from getting enough oxygen. Sleep interrupted, sleep apnea. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, 
My name is Dave Hank, and I've been a board member at Healing Words Foundation for the last nine years. Well, my background goes all the way back to DeSmet, South Dakota, uh, where Rick Holm and I were childhood friends. We were at USD together, and uh, we've managed to stay close friends for our entire lives. And I spent the bulk of my career with Weyerhaeuser Company in the Pacific Northwest, and I led their production forestry research group. Uh, I also spent time on the faculties of Auburn, Virginia Tech, Purdue, and affiliate faculty positions at University of Washington, University of Idaho. And in retirement, I've spent most of my time in the nonprofit world in board service. When Rick and Joni were putting the foundation together several years ago, Rick I would call and ask a question or two, and I usually had the answer, or at least where he could go. And, and so eventually, he and Joni invited me to be a member of the Healing Words Foundation Board, and that's how it happened. The foundation and, and the Prairie Doc Media production is really committed to truthful, timely, tested medical information. And there's a lot of information out there now that's uh, either half truth or no truth. And of course, being a scientist by profession, we're always seekers of truth, understanding full well that the truth can change with additional research. Every dollar that's pledged or given to Healing Words Foundation unleashes an army of volunteers. You know, the foundation and the Prairie Doc Media puts out really good stuff, very useful things. So there's a high return on the investment to invest in the Prairie Doc. For more information or to donate, head to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Out here, the day starts early and ends late. You don't love this land because it's easy. You love it because it's home. At Avera, we're built for rural healthcare. We're bringing quality, innovation, and advanced technology to your vibrant communities. Care when and where you need it. That's how Avera moves health forward. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Ophthalmology Limited, Avera Medical Group Brookings, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Monument Health, Dakota Dermatology, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yenton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, South Dakota American College of Physicians, Cool Beans Coffee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, and Swiftel Communications. <laughs>